0: About it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. And I'm Alicia, Scott's daughter, home for a surprise visit from school. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. Man, it's dull around here. Then go back to school! Hey, 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 hey. Here's Scott!
2: Go-
0: Thompson welcome to my world uh, good afternoon, it is 3.09, it is Hamilton today, I'm Scott Thompson, Will Erskine on the board, Ted Michaels, Diana Weeks in the newsroom, uh, watching the world spin around. Feel free to jump into the fun, we would love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com, and the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 uh, on uh, the cell. And yeah, our uh, our daughter surprised us with a visit home uh, the other night, and it was you know home from university, so it was nice because we weren't expecting it. It's, ah, Yeah, exactly, and uh, it, because you realize how
3: quiet it has been,
0: you know, since they went back, and and, and then within like I don't know, I think it was like twenty minutes, wah, 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 you know, crap flying around all over the place, the house is a mess, like, and all that sort of thing. Uh, but you know, you cherish those moments, don't you? Uh, So it's a lot of fun, and we're having a great time. Anyway, uh, I digress. No, that wasn't a song uh, from Ted, although you're hearing the horn section, and you're thinking that must be a Ted song, you know, from his, uh, I don't know, 80s days perhaps? No, 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 incorrect. It was the Will Man that pulled the song. Uh, Will, explain your choice.
2: Uh, so that was a song called It's All Right, and it's by a uh, Brooklyn-based duo Matt and Kim, who I've been fans of for, uh, they've been around almost over 10 years now. Uh, and I think a lot of people kind of know that because it's definitely been in the background of some car commercials for a good long time now. But it's just a happy, upbeat-sounding tune to me, so I picked it for today because I figured we could use the good energy
0: we could and you know because you're still kind of groggy from the uh, time change weekend it's i know it's dark I'm out like... right
2: now what <laughs> oh, is
0: that don't, don't turn the lights on yet will we're not ready yet but get ready uh it, it's a short time away anyway uh we got a jam packed show coming for you and i hope you hang around for it feel free to jump into the conversation send us a note scott thompson at 900chml.com phone line's always open 905-645-3221 star 9900 on your cell twitter poll question of the day. Uh, do you support higher property taxes to help the city recover from covid 19 ninety percent no <laughs> uh, I think we can see that one coming everybody wants to help until it's time to pay unfortunately uh, the ongoing debate continues all right this is a fascinating story and we we often talk about the negative aspects of social media and 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 of course the the negative elements of it and and a result of the certain uh, the Facebook uh, whistleblower that we've heard of of late obviously uh, echoing a lot of this uh, but you know uh, we forget uh, some of the good things that social media can do and, and here's a great example a hand signal that was developed by the Canadian Women's Association uh, spread across TikTok and became a crucial element in a rescue of a kidnapped teenage girl in North Carolina it's an incredible story uh, let's introduce you to Suzanne Duncan Canadian Women's Foundation Vice President of Philanthropy and with us now. Suzanne, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well.
4: Doing well. Thanks so much for having me here today.
0: This is a incredible story. Uh, tell us first of all about the hand signal and how this all came about.
4: Absolutely. So back when the pandemic started in about April of 2020, here at the Canadian Women's Foundation, we became very worried about the risk of gender-based violence because we know that intimate partner violence spikes whenever there's some kind of disruption, whether that's, you know, the fires in Fort McMurray, whether that's a pandemic, whether that is an earthquake. So we knew that this was going to be an issue that we needed to get in front of. And at the same time, we also knew that folks are going to be online a lot more. Um, and we know that when folks are living with abusers, those abusers can often monitor their phones, monitor their email, so we wanted to come up with a tool that would be very easy for people to use that wouldn't leave a digital trace. And that's how the Signal for Help got developed. And you can imagine that we, we've we heard that really spread over the last year and a half, using a digital platform. So, you know, seeing it go out on TikTok, seeing it go out on Instagram, but we've also heard so many stories of folks using it around the world from Turkey to the UK. And this is one more example of how useful it is for there to be a simple tool to let people know that you need help.
0: Are you surprised how this has spread?
4: I'm I, uh, I'm not necessarily surprised because we know that so many folks live with um, with gender based violence in Canada, about 44% of women will experience um, some form of gender based violence in their lifetime. And we know that that is being exacerbated by the pandemic. It's getting a lot worse. So I am not surprised to hear that a tool that's helping keep women and gender diverse people safe is being used. But what's so interesting to me is in the last 48 hours, so much media has reached out to talk about this. And every time we get a chance to talk about this hand sign, we're helping more people know about it and giving them a tool that they can use to make sure that they can stay safe.
0: Uh, and with, I was asking, a surprise how, how quickly it spread, and you said no, but that's also confirmation on how mm. much something like this was needed and how severe this problem is
4: absolutely and you know that you know violence and and uh, gender based violence intimate partner violence this is something that's been in the shadows for a long time it is something that people are often uncomfortable talking about there's a lot of shame there's a lot of stigma there's victim blaming there's all sorts of challenges that prevent people from asking for the help that they need so here at the Canadian Women's Foundation, we're to really help people know what to do to respond. And you can go to our website, learn some more, sign up for our newsletter. And in just a few weeks, we're launching a campaign that's going to help people know what to do when they see this sign, know what's the most appropriate action to take that's going to make sure that that person can stay safe and also get the help they need.
0: All right. So tell everybody what this sign is. Let's get try to make that as clear as we can. What What is sure. the sign?
4: Sure. So you put your hand up to face the camera, um, your whole hand open, then you put your thumb to your palm as though you're making a number four, and then you use your fingers to trap that thumb. So it's uh, hand open, thumb to palm, fingers trapping the thumb. And you can see some examples of this on on our website as well as on lots of different uh, social media channels right now.
0: So as if you were holding up four fingers and then just folding them down over top of uh, of your thumb. Tell us about this latest situation with this girl from North Carolina.
4: Yeah, so uh, I am not sure how much folks know, but this girl from North Carolina um, had been abducted and she was in a car with her abductor. She had actually been missing for for a few days um and uh, she was actually able to use this sign discreetly out the window um so that she could signal to to other drivers to other passengers what was going on and that she needed help and uh, fortunately uh, other folks saw that recognized it and uh, were able to contact police and they were able to safely intervene and now young woman uh, is is safe uh, and as part of this more and more people are learning about this sign and how to make sure that they know what to do when they see it.
0: Suzanne Duncan with us, Canadian Women's Foundation Vice President of Philanthropy. I know you got to run, Suzanne. Thanks for the time. Uh, Great story. Good luck moving forward with all of this.
4: Thank you so much, And, and thanks for giving us this opportunity to talk about it.
0: It's uh, Thanks so much, Suzanne. Good luck. Uh, She's got to run for another call. But, yeah, this is a very uh, simple thing. And, and, uh, again, imagine that you're holding an open hand and you're waving. Just bend your thumb in as if you're holding up four fingers or, look, four, and then fold them down over top of your thumb. And this girl was stuck in a car and, I I guess, did this signal out of uh, her window and another motorist picked up on it called police and if you've seen the report which is uh, I'm sure you can find it if you if you look online and, and followed the car for a little bit until eventually the police arrived and discovered her there and the rest is history as they say so you know an incredible scenario and again this was all started by the Canadian Women's Foundation so uh, you know you think you can't do anything you think you can't help and then they come up with this grand idea and look what happens blammo it spreads across the internet like wildfire and as Suzanne said there's been multiple scenarios since uh, it all came about in the spring uh, where it is uh, proven to to help and be successful. So, you know, during this time of COVID nineteen, during this time where you know we talk so much about mental illness and, and and mental health and and how and what the global pandemic has done to this. And we knew, as Suzanne was saying, that there's been an uptick in domestic violence, this sort of thing. So, for them to have the forward thinking uh, to come up with su- such a signal is 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 really remarkable. And congratulations to them. And I'm sure you can. Find out more uh, on social media uh, revol- uh, involving all of this uh, and the TikTok video. All right, let's move on. Uh, we all certainly uh, heard the news over the weekend of the tragedy with eight people losing their lives at uh, Astro World concert, uh, which included uh, rappers Travis Scott and Drake. And this was a general admission type of event where all the people kind of cram in. And my first reaction to all of this is I thought this wasn't allowed anymore. I mean, uh, you heard uh, Will play The Who on the way in. We remember uh, in the 70s uh, in Cincinnati this happening at a Who show where there was the same sort of uh, non-assigned seating. And the rest is history, as they say. Let's bring in Eric Elper, music pop culture expert. He is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well.
5: No problem. Happy to join you as always.
0: What are your thoughts when you hear about this? The first thing I thought about is is I don't I didn't even know this was allowed anymore, unless there was some really extreme scenarios where you could allow people to get out if they needed to be out.
5: Yeah, um, the the first instance that I had was those memories as a kid, um, finding out about that Who concert that happened at Riverfront Stadium where eleven teenagers lost their lives. Um, and the one big change after that was that. Um, the state of Ohio banned festival seating or general admission seating, as it's known, still to this day. In fact, there was only one show since 1979 in Ohio where they allowed general admission, and that was for Bruce Springsteen back in the 80s. But it wasn't a nationwide ban, though. And what the first kind of the, the second thought I, I, I thought about was, this is amazing that it doesn't happen more often when you mm. think about how many festivals happen in Hamilton in Ontario, in Canada and North America and throughout the world, because we've seen this happen a couple of times overseas in Sweden for the Pearl Jam Show where a dozen or more people lost their lives. We've seen that soccer festivals. Um, and soccer events happening in, in the UK. And we've seen this at religious events um, in Saudi Arabia mm. uh, and Egypt where trampling happens and, unfortunately, people lose their lives. So it's amazing how many shows go on where this doesn't happen and we don't hear about us.
0: So what is the law? What is the situation in Ontario? Um, I guess it's allowed under certain scenarios if there's uh, enough of a, a, an exit strategy, I guess. But what is the law here? How, what is our stance on this?
5: Usually, you know, it's working in conjunction with the city and the provincial, and sometimes even the national government to ensure that, depending on the size of the land and the other vendors taking up space, there's only a certain percentage that is allowed to be sold tickets. In the case of Travis Scott's um, Astro World and the venue, the capacity was potentially 200,000, but they capped it at about 45,000. It turned out that there was about 5,000 people that crashed through the gates, bypassing all points of security from then on in after they they broke through the metal barriers and got in for free. So it really depends on, on the size of the venue. And then you have all of the security features that are in place by law that the city has. So if you want to hold an event somewhere in Hamilton, you have to work with the city of Hamilton to ensure that there's enough police officers, that there's enough water and bathroom supplies, Mm -hmm. and that there is enough exits on there or else that show does not get that permit. By all accounts, it looks like that even at World, everything was on the up and up. It seemed like they had more police officers than one published report said, um, you know, more police officers than the World Series. Nobody would have expected 50,000 people to surge all at the same time throughout uh, a number of times during the event. Because, you know, I know that you've been to concerts. When you see surges like that, the amount of energy and force can literally bend steel if it wanted to.
0: So, uh, do you see this, and obviously it's still early in this investigation, but do you see this as an an initial security breakdown, in other words, gate crashers, and then that's what sort of started that surge or stampede?
5: No, I think it's just a mad rush to go and see the various people that are on stage, and that's why Drake was... Um, named in at least one of the lawsuits um, because Drake happened to be on stage and they didn't stop the show. Depending on what video you've seen on social media, Travis Scott either knows that somebody is hurt um, within feet in front of him and didn't do anything about it or was told to carry on the show. It turned out that a half hour before um, Travis Scott on stage, Houston police talked to them and said that there's potential for rioting out there Travis Scott has a little bit of a history when it comes to inciting riots and violence. In fact, he's been arrested two times for inciting a riot and violence at his shows in the past. Um, so this is a guy that kind of thrives on a little bit of negative energy and the power of the energy of the audience. So I don't know how much of a breakdown it is. It, it, mostly it's did the show have the ability to stop it. And if it did, could it have been worse trying to get 50,000 pent-up, amped-up teenagers out of that building and out of that area safely? I'm not so sure that that was the right move if they would have canceled the show either. Um,
0: so what does this mean for the performers, uh, Travis Scott, Drake? What does it mean for the promoter?
5: Well, I think for, for the promoters, it sets a fear in the hearts for the next like couple of years because this lawsuit is not going to be settled for at least... Um, at least probably until 2023, Live Nation and the city and anybody that's involved with it may not just settle out of court. Um, by most most of their accounts, they did everything by the book. So I think it's just going to be in a holding pattern, but making sure that, you know, people are treated with as much respect as possible. But, you know, if you've ever been to a festival show like this, long lineups for the bathroom, long mm. lineups for water at like seven dollars you know, each, you kind of felt like cattle a little bit. So the amount of respect, I think, has to change for the safety of everybody involved.
0: Eric Elper with us, music publicist, pop culture expert, talking about Astroworld and the crowd surge that cost the lives of eight. Eric, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Be well.
5: You too. We'll talk soon up on the news and
0: information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. This is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will on the board, Ted and Diana in the newsroom. Jump into the conversation. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900 chmlcom And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Start 9900 on your cell. Well, as you heard last night, the SpaceX Dragon capsule in Denver, uh, Endeavor rather, uh, returned to Earth safely, splashing down your floor Florida and its crew of four, uh, 199 days in space. Let's bring in Paul Delaney, Alan Carswell, chair for the public understanding of astronomy, professor, York University, and with us now, Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott. Always good to be with you. So uh, I had forgot that these people had been up there for so long. It, it's, it, there's so <laughs> yes. much action. There's so much action going on up there. It's hard to keep track. So 199 full days in space. Boy, Paul, couldn't they have at least made it up to 200 just to hit
6: that milestone? Why? Why at 199 <laughs> did they pull the plug? You know, you and I think terribly much like each other because that was my thought too. What would have hurt one more day for 200, a nice round number? But yeah, it was a long endurance flight. It wasn't supposed to be quite that long. It was meant to be in the 180s, but weather and the problems with uh, the Crew 3 launch and so on all conspired to push it out a little bit further. But as you said, they made it look easy landing last night exactly when and where they wanted uh, in the Gulf of Mexico.
0: So tell us about this mission and and its uh, objective, the purpose of all of this.
6: Well, like most of the current missions, there's a heavy emphasis on science. That's one of the, the big aspects of flying four crew members to the International Space Station. There's now a regular crew of seven on board the ISS, and that uh, allows for a lot more science to be done. You know, the ISS might only be operational for another four, six, eight years, and so NASA has made a very deliberate decision to increase the science output. So there's a lot more uh, microgravity experiments that are being done. There's a lot more Uh, Biology. There is certainly a lot more experimentation on uh, sort of like flying drones inside the International Space Station. Basically, this was a big step forward or a big step up, if you will, in terms of science productivity. They were outside the International Space Station on no fewer than four spacewalks. They've had a new uh, science lab dock, courtesy of the Russian Space Federation. So it was a busy mission with a heavy emphasis on science, which is great as far as I'm concerned.
0: So (laughs) more emphasis on the projects than
6: actually the endurance of all of this. Exactly. I mean, this is an operational lab. You know, it's been in place now for over 20 years. And as you will recall, the first 10 years was spent building the darn thing, but over the last 10 years, they have increased the, Uh, the science capabilities of the International Space Station. And now it's pretty well in steady state. They've got sort of like four science labs up there that are being run around the clock. And with the increased crew complement, it just means the productivity of the system is that much higher. And as I said, that's really important. And over 20 years for the operating systems, it tells you that we're learning how to build long-lasting systems for not just earth orbit but potentially for the moon and mars that should also be remembered so and then there were three who's left up there That's true. There are two cosmonauts and one American, one NASA astronaut, who are holding the fort, so as to speak, keeping the lights on, until tomorrow night with the launch of Crew-3. If all goes well, uh, by this time Thursday morning uh, or Thursday afternoon, there will be back to the regular complement of seven. There was meant to be, in fact, a a brief period of 11 astronauts on board the ISS. Crew-2 and Crew-3 were meant to overlap on board the international space station but they brought crew two back before crew three launched because the longevity of a spacecraft in orbit was approaching you can have only a 210 day limit it's a safety imposed limit for the spacecraft in orbit because of the uh sort of the cosmic ray damage the the the, the, the possibility that the system on board the spacecraft could misbehave during re-entry and obviously you don't want that so nasa was getting just a little bit uh concerned in that regard with only a 10-day margin left they brought crew 2 home before they launched crew 3. so what is the trip back like well it was about uh, i guess nearly Yeah, it was about eight hours. They undocked at uh, 2 p.m. yesterday afternoon. So that's basically when they sort of, uh, you know, disengaged from the ISS. They spent about four hours flying around the space station yesterday. So that was not necessary, but they did it anyway to take a lot of photographs of the entire space station. So they spent, if you will, you know, like being a tourist, they were looky-loos for about four hours Mm. yesterday afternoon. Then they steered clear of the ISS and waited for the exact alignment where they could issue the deorbit burn, which happened last night at nine o'clock to bring them down into the Gulf of Mexico. So it was a lot of hurry up and wait actually for the first seven hours. And then everything happened sort of all at once. They jettisoned the trunk, they fired their retro thrusters, they slowed them down out of orbit. That's when they dip into the upper atmosphere. They slow down further. That's when the, uh, the, G-forces, the acceleration on the vehicle increase up to around about five times your body weight. So in that period from just after nine o'clock to just after 10 o'clock, things were happening thick and fast. And then, of course, the parachutes deploy about four minutes, three to four minutes before touchdown and touchdown occurred at 1033. So, you know, it's a well choreographed sequence. It was about eight hours yesterday. It could have been as short as four hours, but as I said, there was this sort of touristy aspect to the fly around of the ISS before they left.
0: That being said, these are professional astronauts. This wasn't like Captain Kirk in space, what we've seen before, that's for sure. Uh, Paul Delaney with us, uh, Professor at York University, uh, Professor of Astronomy, and the Alan Carswell Chair for Public Understanding of Astronomy. Paul, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. Cheers. (laughs) Sit is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, Willerskin on the board, Ted Michaels, and Diana Weeks around the big round table as we throw out the issues of the day and see where everybody's heads at. Everybody's just dying to talk about urban boundary and urban boundary expansion. They're just all chomping at the bed. I can listen. Hear them? They just say they they want to offer their opinions so much on on the urban boundary. And I know you don't, so we're not going to talk about it. But I just got what this one thing to say, and then you guys can react or you can't. Why do we always fight about this? Uh, and why is it always an either or? Here's a great idea. Why don't we build in the inner city and give lots of housing opportunity for those who want uh, medium and higher density housing? And then why don't we expand expand the uh, urban boundary and build some uh, homes that people want to buy and raise their families in? Why does this always have to be an argument between one or the other? Does anybody want to weigh in on that? Everything has to be an argument, Scott.
4: <laughs> it's Hamilton City Council.
0: <laughs> you know, it just, it's just, you know, we have to grow. So we have to build, but we can do it smartly. So, uh, you know, again, I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both. Anyway, that's my opinion. Let's move on. Property taxes, the poll question of the day. Do you support a property tax increase because everybody is feeling the pinch from COVID-19, including the municipalities? It's cost them all more money, uh, from every level of government, really. Uh, do you support the property tax increase to help the city recover from COVID-19? By the way, in the poll question of the day, 90% said no. Ted? Nope. Diana?
4: Well, it depends how much. I'm going to say no, but I mean, what are we talking here, you know? The amount.
1: Every year we have a tax increase. It doesn't matter what it is, if it's two percent, three percent, four percent, whatever it is. And I'm going to speak for most people in the city. We are taxed to death. And I'm not mm-hmm. going to get into the situation of why we are. A lot of it is uh, coming down from um, money from the governments and everything else downloading. But um, no, I can't afford it anymore. No. Yeah,
4: I know. Like everything's going up, and yep, I don't I think you. I don't think it's going to be good. No, <laughs> I'm uh, all right. Go ahead, Will.
2: Well, I'm just going to say, let's uh, let's take the Elon Musk approach and say, well, explain it to me exactly how this is going to, where my money's going, break it down for me exactly what's going to happen, and then we'll see. I don't know.
0: Uh, This is a fascinating story and and let me explain it to you in case you don't know this. Uh, We talked about this earlier on in the show with the person that came up with this and it's a hand signal that you display if you are in danger and the Canadian Women's Association came up with this as a result of the increase the uptick in domestic abuse this sort of thing over the course of a global pandemic and basically what it is if you imagine holding up your hand folding in your thumb as if you're holding up four fingers And then you fold your four fingers over top of your thumb to make it sound like you are being held. Uh, This came out of Canada and it has gone across uh, social media and actually uh, helped a kid in uh, North Carolina. My question is, if you saw somebody doing this, would you hesitate to call for help? Because I'm not sure I would know what they were doing. Uh, because I don't follow this as much as the kids do. But w- would would you call for w- would you call for help if you saw that sign, Diana? Uh,
4: now I would. I would have no idea what it was before. But if I saw that sign now, I definitely would. What I'm concerned about is that now kids are going to start using it, goofing yeah. off, and you know that's the problem, right?
0: That was another thought I had. Uh, You know, what if mom and dad and kids are in some sort of little fight, something's going on, and somebody puts the hand signal out the window, and all of a sudden it's abused. Your
1: thoughts, Ted? Well, I know that this was used uh, a while ago, uh, like at pharmacies, where if a woman would come up Mm. uh, and go to the pharmacist or the pharmacist's assistant and give that little subtle signal, then uh, that that would be their their cry for help. So, uh, Diana's right, sometimes kids can abuse things, and as you say, Hey, Scott, you know, kid's in an argument with mom and dad. I understand that. But if people really take that seriously and know what the signal is all about, then by all means will I jump in. Absolutely. Will? Will's actually on the phone. All right. <laughs> no, he's he's back.
0: You know, I, I, I'm amazed that this spread at the speed that it did, and as many people, although you know we didn't necessarily know about it, as many young people know about it as they did. And I asked uh, the the woman at the Canadian uh, Women's Association, and she said, I asked her if she was surprised at the speed in which this message has gotten out, and she said no because it was done in a response to help people because uh, the abuse was increasing. So uh, not only does it show how much it spreads on social media, but it shows you how bad the problem really is.
1: And the problem has been exacerbated by COVID. Uh, with a lot of uh, people, uh, women, men as well, are in abusive situations. Um, COVID has caused a lot of people to stay indoors, and that's the problem. So if they get a chance to get out and ask for help in that subtle way, then that's good. But again, COVID, just another thing that COVID is doing with our lives.
2: It does show though, uh, not that this is, um, much of a balance, but it does bring home that the Internet and our communication and our connected society and ability to share images even uh, is uh, there is a plus side to it. It's what we yeah, do with it. Yeah. We can use this for good progress.
0: Yeah, we don't have to use the Internet for evil. We can use it for good purposes. Hear that, That's Mark? A very- that's a very valid point. And Mark is tuned in. He emails me all the time. All right. Uh, the uh, Air Canada CEO is getting in a lot of flack because he uh, was not uh, able to speak French when asked by French reporters. Is this a big deal? My first question is, why are we talking about this now? Wouldn't this be something, if it was a prerequisite, that it would have been discussed prior to all of this uh, for his, him being employed? But your thoughts
1: on any of this, Ted? Uh, well, you mentioned the fact that it- was brought up by French language reporters. And, uh, you know, maybe at the time uh, it wasn't a. I, I just sometimes wonder about the timing of these things and who was asking the questions and what their um, hidden agenda is. So that's as far as I'll say about that. So, Diana?
4: Yeah, I kind of tend to agree there with what uh, Ted said. I don't know much about the story, obviously. Uh, it just coming out today, I believe. But um, I do. Yeah, I mean, I. It's kind of odd
0: that it's kind of odd this wasn't discussed earlier if it is such a big issue. Well,
2: Uh, Yeah, I'm surprised. I'm surprised that if this is going to be something that blows up here and now, why has this not happened uh, for him in the past? Why is this only, did we just discover? Oh my goodness, he's been faking French this whole time. Uh, (laughs) No, it kind of comes out of nowhere. I I understand some of the reasoning why they would want him to be bilingual. He is in a high up position. We are a bilingual country, but uh, I, I personally am not sure It is as huge of a deal as some people are making it out to be.
0: All right. 199 days in space. Four astronauts from the uh, International Space Station land last night. Safe. All is good. Uh, what would the first thing you'd do once you finished 199 days in space,
1: Ted? Hit Timmy's. <laughs> 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 you know what? <laughs> 199 double, days, double, 199 days in space without real coffee. Yeah. Which I'm, I'm sure it's for, you know, it's the little things, right? I'm sure that they have massive cravings up there for, like, you know, Timmy's or, you know, what? Uh, blueberry donut. I'm surprised. Donut or I'm, something. surprised
0: yeah. I'm surprised there isn't a Timmy's up there.
1: The <laughs> I love how for
4: Ted. I love how for Ted, it's all like, oh, you know, hug my family or whatever. It's like, no, he's hauling it to Tim. of the drive-through. Yeah, and then then we'll visit the, the 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 family.
0: Well, maybe he knows the family <laughs> will be at Timmy's. That's, yeah, the that's true. Or maybe that he's
4: bringing you know a Timbits or something.
0: <laughs> all right. Thank you, big round table. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let's talk some uh, Canadian politics, rumors flying around about an NDP, a liberal coalition. Uh, meanwhile, Aaron O'Toole has announced his new shadow cabinet, his new conservative shadow cabinet. Uh, and can he get everybody on board to row in the same direction? Let's bring in Alon Fatellis, research consultant with Summa Strategies and with us now. Alon, thank you for the time. I hope you're
7: doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott.
0: So obviously we all remember, although some may have even forgotten about now, uh, since it was kind of uneventful and exactly pretty much what we had before, but we came through a election and ended up in the same place that we were when we started with a uh, liberal minority government. Is there any reason to believe once this all gets back in the House that uh, things will be any different this time? What are you anticipating this time versus last time?
7: Yeah, to be honest with you, I'm not... Um uh, I think that people need to temper their expectations around uh, this uh, deal that's been swirling around the news. Uh, whether or not the parties come to any sort of formal or informal agreement, I, I do expect the NDP to vote alongside the Liberals on most issues, because while the Liberals need the NDP or the Bloc to uh, pass their agenda and to survive confidence votes, um, I think that Jugmeet's saying does not want to head into another election anytime soon, given his party's uh, fairly disappointing results back in September. So
0: will there be much change in what was happening uh, or what will happen in this uh, new House as opposed to the old? Or or with it being post-pandemic, things might heat up a bit more?
7: Yeah, look, in the last parliament, the liberals... um, had time on their side. They had uh, the advantage of being able to call a snap election, uh, of having very high favorability ratings amongst Canadians uh, throughout the pandemic. Um, And I think in a lot of ways, and I'm speaking as a liberal, um, they uh, maybe got a little too uh, uh, lazy when it comes to pushing through their policy agenda. now the Liberals don't have the same advantages. Uh, they saw that, uh, you know, calling a snap election didn't necessarily give them much better results, didn't give them the majority that they wanted. Um, and I think that might actually, or I hope that it'll uh, provide the Trudeau government and uh, the Liberals with um, the, you know, the, the push that they need in order to push um, a more, policy, uh, more uh, ambitious policy agenda, uh, the one that they've been promising to Canadians.
0: Is it different post-pandemic? Is there a different mood, a different buzz? Will there be less uh, patience, perhaps?
7: That's a good question. Um, I, I think that uh, you know nobody is in a rush or in a position to head into another election now. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I, you know, the liberals don't necessarily have a, a fire uh, under their or under their seat right now. Um, I think that uh, you know. They're, they're, they recognize that they have about a two or three year period until uh, another uh, election is likely called. You know, in a minority government, things could always come up. Uh, we could have another election tomorrow. That's probably unlikely. Um, but the liberals do have time on their side. Uh, but again, not like they did uh, in the in the past parliaments uh, where, um, they did have the advantage, uh, and did continuously to be friend the conservatives, the NDP in the block, uh, with, uh, um, with an election call. Uh,
0: what is the biggest challenge for the prime minister as we exit? Well, <laughs> slowly, hopefully move on from a COVID-19 pandemic. Obviously that was, uh, monopolizing everyone's time for the last, uh, over a year and a half moving forward though. What's, what's going to be his biggest challenge?
7: Yeah, look, with or without a pandemic, uh, the prime minister has a lot of challenges uh, facing him. I think that the biggest challenge uh, moving forward for him uh, once the pandemic hopefully recedes um, is uh, to uh, find momentum and get support for the other non-pandemic related policy initiatives that he's trying to push through. Look, um, the prime minister didn't manage to get a majority in the last election, uh, but still the pandemic was uh, fairly favorable to him in political terms. Uh, things like uh, pandemic supports like CERB um, and CERS, uh, those were very popular moves that I think benefited him politically uh, at the end of the day. Um, I think the, the big challenge for Justin Trudeau is, is going to be, um, you know, keeping that popular support. Gaining support um, and momentum for um, other non pandemic related uh, moves, um, the Liberals' various um, internet and privacy related uh, policy initiatives and things like that. Um, yeah.
0: What about uh, Aaron O'Toole moving forward? It, it, his party seems to, there, there seems to be still some, uh, uh, you know, some, some anarchy among the ranks. So, how does he move forward and, and keep everybody rowing in the same direction?
7: That's a very good question. And I think it's a question that he's been struggling with uh, as well. Um, You know, personally, looking at the conservative shadow cabinet that was announced earlier today, um, it's fairly underwhelming. And I think fairly, um, I I don't think it bodes well for for O'Toole's path forward. Um, Look, I'm not a conservative, uh, but I do think that Aaron O'Toole deserves some credit for for keeping more reasonable, reasonable voices like uh, Michelle Rempel garner um, in the shadow cabinet and resisting the urge to bring in perhaps more alienating voices like Cleveson Lewis into the fold. Um, but with the exception of a few new faces and some, some shuffles of the shadow cabinet, looks almost exactly like the last one. Um, yeah, on the one hand, you don't want to be too reactionary. You don't want a leader who's going to blow everything up after an election loss. But on the other hand, uh, I am wondering what O'Toole is thinking going forward and, and why he's not going with bigger changes. I, I think it's probably a sign, like you said, that his number one concern right now is keeping his party happy and preventing any further discord from taking place internally and uh, keeping th- things as they are and trying not to ruffle anyone's feathers is, is one way of doing that. But I'm not sure whether it's going to pay off for him nationally.
0: Alon Fatella is with us, research consultant with Summa Strategies, uh, talking about Canadian politics and where we are uh, after another minority uh, election. Uh, thanks so much for the time, Alan, and uh, take care. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott.
3: We have a crisis of leadership. People are very, very dissatisfied with the quality
8: of leadership across the board, and and I will say across all wards as well, so we don't have just hot spots this is uh, consistent across wards. That was probably
6: the most surprising, I think.
0: All right, that is Graham Crawford on this morning talking about an I-elect. Uh, survey that was done, and, and obviously this is uh, not a scientific poll, but certainly uh, will, will show a gauge of some who aren't happy and how they're feeling uh, in the city. And uh, you know, we've talked about this many times, many times on this show, uh, of how w- we kind of end up with the same council every election, and uh, there, the, you don't see a, a lot of change. I mean, there's been some, uh, but not a lot. And and obviously, it's still resonating with some. Let's bring in. Uh, Peter Grant, political science uh, professor at McMaster University, and he is with us. Now I guess no surprise here. There's always uh those that are unhappy with uh council and, and and what is going on. Uh and now that we're coming out of a global pandemic, I guess that uh, if we are in fact, uh you know, people are looking at things a little differently. Are you surprised at any of this? Uh that that here we are again talking about people just want, you know, anybody but the incumbent at this point.
3: I mean, I guess I'm a bit surprised that, you know, you have over 2,000 people who will go and spend the time filling out an online survey. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, so certainly, you know, given that it was sponsored by the I-Elect Group and you had to go on their website to, to fill it out, uh, you mm-hmm. know, I'm not surprised that uh, the general viewpoint shares that of the I-Elect Group, that there's a crisis in leadership in the city. But, yeah, the you know, the number of people who are uh, willing to do that and the fact that, You know, while it was concentrated, the responses in wards one, two, three, uh, uh, there's nevertheless, you know, responses across the city coming in. uh, You know, it's an indication that at least, you know, among those who don't like the city council, uh, there may be more numerous and uh, better organized than in, in some past electoral cycles.
0: Does uh, this uh, matter simply because we're coming out of a COVID, uh, COVID-19 global pandemic? And obviously, uh, people are divisive. People are looking for change in some way. Is it different because of where we are with the pandemic?
3: Yeah, I'm not sure that the pandemic um, matters a whole lot in this. I mean, it was before the pandemic that we had the revelations about the cover-up of, uh, you know, sewage into the harbor, for instance, uh, which, you know, got a lot of people upset, uh... Uh, The question of the the Red Hill repaving, you know, would have been another example. I mean, uh, you know, the pandemic maybe has had, you know, some impact, but I think it's more uh, a sense that, uh, you know, there's plenty of reasons to be upset with what City Council is doing, but not a lot of evidence of, you know, bold, uh, you know, visions or ideas for the city, more of kind of failing to do basic things like keeping sewage out of the harbor or if you find out about it, letting citizens know, uh, you know, to help uh, find an answer. I mean we had another recent example in the integrity report that came out on Friday uh you know related to a complaint against uh, uh you know one of the mountain councillors and you know uh, you know independent mm-hmm. of that specific case they noted that you know they, 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 these integrity commissioners have sat in hundreds of city council meetings across Ontario and they had never seen anything quite like the uh questioning of this councillor of staff in terms of you know it's bullying and it's disrespect and they noted that anywhere else other city councillors would have intervened to prevent it uh... but that doesn't happen in hamilton and so uh, you know i think you know there's this accumulating sense that city council or uh, many city councillors are just comfortable with the way they're doing things even if they probably have really negative long-term impacts i mean how do you uh, maintain uh... the cooperation and the uh, motivation of city staff when you know they're afraid to go and speak to, to council because of the manner in which they're treated you know they're going to go and work elsewhere. So I think for those kinds of reasons, uh, you know, this has resonated a bit more because uh, you know, there's an ongoing series of examples of these kinds of failures and again, uh, it's hard to think of the big successes uh, on city council. I mean, we could say look, the LRT's going forward, but you know, mm-hmm. that's another example of where yeah. council refused to say no for many years uh and relitigated at everything. So that even when it's coming, uh, it's, it's as if we've blown many opportunities to make the most of it uh, as, a, as a project to transform the city.
0: Many have talked, especially in the last ten years, how much this city—a city has changed, uh, turning the corner. Pick whatever phrase you want to use. Is the council as progressive as the city has become?
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the city's uh, you know progressive or not, but certainly the council doesn't really seem to have uh, much of a vision of where the city is going. So the city is changing in really significant ways, and there's no. There's no sense that City Hall is really either, you know, helping it uh, and capitalizing on it or dealing with some of the negative repercussions. Uh, you know, again, uh, you know, uh, part of the survey is showing that people feel they can't afford to live in the city anymore. You know, but there's there's been very little in the way of a city strategy in terms of maintaining affordability, for instance. So, you know, part of it is, is you know, not being there to, to push things forward. Part of it is, is not really dealing with the problems I mean, I think generally there's uh, there's a number of councillors who are not up-to-date with the way in which people are following City Hall. In the old days, citizens would know what happened at City Hall by reading uh, the report, you know, the next day or two days later in the newspaper yeah. about what that was happening. Now, you know, many citizens know what the decisions are going to be and are trying to have some influence on them because they figure that they affect them and can follow in real time what's going on. And I, I think many of the councillors are unable... Right to, to deal with that change and engage in a positive manner with these people watching council, they're feeling it as a real kind of threat to their ability to make decisions. We see them making use of closed meetings more than any other municipality in Ontario. Um, you, again, there's this, this kind of I think a fear of the city that's changed, rather than trying to find ways to to embrace those changes or where those changes are, pro- are problematic to them, because it's not all good things happening in the city to come up with, you know, real mitigation strategies.
0: Yeah, you don't want to use the word fear when you're talking about city planning. I mean, hopefully you're a visionary. Peter Graf with us, a political science professor at McMaster University, talking about local politics. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. And you too. Let's bring in Dr. Frank Clayton, Senior Research Fellow, Center for Urban and Land Development at Ryerson. Uh, reason being, obviously, the big issue of Hamilton's urban boundary. It seems on one side, uh, we have those that want to, uh, build more houses. And then on the other side, it's, uh, nope, that's not good. We have to fill in the infields, the spaces, the lots that are already within uh the urban boundary and within the city limits uh can we not do a bit of both is it is it that simple a discussion let's bring in dr frank clayton senior fellow a research fellow center for urban and research land development at ryerson doctor thanks for the time i hope you're doing well i'm doing fine scott it seems that we have this debate uh we've been having it for decades whether we're you know in a global pandemic or not that being said how has this global pandemic changed this discussion
9: has it it's uh, changed it on the margin Uh, we we had a situation we did a study about three or four years ago talking about where the housing market in the greater toronto and hamilton area was going over the next decade and we we uh, focused on the millennials who were now in the mid, at that time in their mid thirties, and they were looking to buy houses, uh, a lot of them. And they were having a child, getting married, or partnered up and having a child or having a dog, and they wanted some uh, lower density housing kind of units. So the, the pandemic has reinforced that, sped that up a little bit, but the trend was already happening. There's a fairly sizable component of the overall market that doesn't want to live in an apartment they want to live in a single detached house a semi-detached house or a townhouse
0: and, you know, th- th- that's obviously the story, and, and a lot of people try to combine the two, but to me, I think they're two completely different issues, uh, one wanting one sort of housing, one wanting the other. How do we balance this?
9: Is there a way to balance this? Well, the, the growth plan for the Greater Golden Horseshoe that the province brought in back in 2000, and the latest version in 2020, actually does balance the two, because it says... That even though the market might only put, say, 30% or 35% of the new housing in, say, the urbanized part of Hamilton, uh, they they have to put a minimum of 50%. So already they're doing a compromise between the environmentalists who don't want any expansion of the urban boundaries, and the builders and development industry and the market who says we want we want just the kind of housing we want we don't care about the other things like the environmental concerns so the, the growth plan is actually a balance of the two it's a market-based forecast that municipalities are supposed to use which hamilton has done but they've gone to extremes uh and and uh, it balances that with the environmental concerns about uh, uh too much farmland being ab- absorbed
0: uh, is there enough infield uh, property lots within the city or or, or city center area of, of of towns to actually build housing, or is it more higher density housing, medium size? Okay. Well, uh, okay, as an economist,
9: as an economist, I talk uh, housing units, a housing unit, you know, whether it's an apartment or a or a single right. attached house. Uh, um, but, okay, build-up areas. But, but as you, you said, throughout- Frank,
0: the point that I'm making, Frank, is like, as you said, you know, and post-pandemic, people don't want to be stacked up like cordwood. They're looking for space. But there is obviously a market for both and, and the balance that well, we're chatting about. No
9: question. And that's why I see nothing wrong with fifty per- targeting 50%, not 60%, but 50, 50% of the new housing to be built in the build-up urban area. See, what happens in the build-up urban area 80% of the housing units built in the build-up area because it's expensive land, they have to redevelop and infill and so on. But 80% are apartment units. And 20% are, you know, the rest are mainly at townhouses and a few singles. Yeah. Whereas in Greenfield lands, it's the other way around. 80% is single family, uh, uh, you know, detached housing. Right. Uh, so if, if you want to accommodate the population growth in the build-up area, you've got to put everybody in apartments pretty well.
0: What about, uh, you know, we hear farmland and, and how we expand it eats up farmland. And again, th- this is a debate that's been going on for, for decades, for generations. Can we not build smart, areas small smart cities smart communities and by that i mean i know it's an overused word but uh but but corridors for agriculture corridors for transit corridors for telecom corridors for energy i mean do we all have to be you know i mean can it can it not can we not have a great scenario in every area as opposed to just filling everything in until we have to move out why can't we build those new places with ready-made parks with ready-made agriculture Areas with ready-made transit areas with ready-made, you know, highways that are needed or whatever. Uh, can we well, do that, there, or is it's, that it's impossible? A, it's,
9: it's, it's, it's sort of like the communist plan in Russia. You know, after the Second World War, you know, they dictated where everybody was going to live and where all the businesses were going to go, and what a disaster that was. You have to remember that people can move around. You can't dictate where people go. And right now, uh, for example, people want single detached houses and they're leaving Toronto, they're going to Hamilton, they're leaving Hamilton, they're going to Niagara region. All of this is spread out because the housing cost is so high because we're restricting the supply of housing of the type that people want to buy. So you can't just dictate and say, okay, let's put everybody in apartments or a quarter here, yeah. a quarter or there. We actually are planning very smart. The growth plan is a great plan that's have been recognized uh, around the world as something that's uh, balancing the, uh, the needs of the people and businesses and environmental. I mean, don't forget we have a 2 million acre green belt that's not being touched, or yeah. very little of it's being touched. Uh, and that's out there. And so, what we're developing is something we call the white belt, which is the land between the urbanized area and the green uh, belt. And that's gonna be developed over the next 20 or 30 years. Uh, and toronto's growing we need a we need something like 45,000 housing units every year to accommodate yeah. growth in this this uh, toronto to hamilton uh region and so you can't accommodate 45,000 in you know putting secondary suites in or putting a little apartment building here or yeah. putting a, a little uh, uh, the back alley putting a unit in you need thousands of units and that that means you need both urbanized areas for apartments and you need to expand the boundaries on the uh, the fringe as well
0: there's a reality dr frank clayton with his research senior research fellow center for urban research and land development at ryerson frank thanks so much for the time and insight much appreciated be well
9: okay okay thanks a lot uh
0: on deck and getting ready for the scott radley show coming up after the news at six o'clock columnist with your hamilton spectator scott radley is here with us now scott thanks for the time hope you're well i am always well how are you I'm doing pretty good. I can't complain. Uh, 199 days in space. The space station is flying around. Uh, you're up there almost 200 days. I'd be disappointed we didn't stay up for one more just to break the 200, but I understand <laughs> it's science. But what would you, what would be the first thing you do when you come back after 199 days in space? Some may say that's almost like living through a, a global pandemic. What would you like to do when you come down?
8: Oh, there's a few things. I would like to eat some real food, like a barbecue something and have some, uh, some <laughs> dawn, squishy bagged food. That would be a good one. Um, probably uh, use a toilet for real, not one that... Uh, that, one did, uh,
0: yeah, that one did, yeah, that one was on the top of my list too, yes. Yeah,
8: not, not to be gross or anything, but I mean, I don't know how they do it without gravity. It can't be easy. So just, you know, something that convenient that we, ha- we take for granted. The gravity and the toilet situation, that would be a good one. You
0: um, know, uh, Diana Weeks, because we asked Ted and he said go to Timmy's.
8: Go to Tim. which you know, another one <laughs> that I would love to know if they do you think that uh, and I've never heard anyone ask you know Chris Hatfield or anyone do they have Netflix or other things up there so they can be entertained or do they just have to work? Oh, in they must. They're up all the time.
0: They're up there with all the satellites. They must have the best TV up there.
8: You would think. You would think, like, otherwise, uh, you'd want to come back and check out what has happened for the last two-thirds of the year and catch up on all your your shows you've missed out on. I'm guessing
0: they're ripping the signal off before it even gets from the Earth up to the satellite. (laughs) They're
8: getting free cable up there, bud. I mean, come on. How can they not? So they're going to come home and be busted for pirating stuff that, uh, that they didn't that's pay for stealing off of
0: hbo that's, that's right. exactly it
8: you pirated music off of uh, Limewire yeah. or whatever yeah. is that's right one. you go up
0: there you go up there with your laptop and you come home and it's just <laughs> jammed with all this free stuff look what i recorded honey that'd be great yeah. oh you're busted uh, Ted said go to Timmy's, as I mentioned, yep. and, and Diana Weeks spoke up. He goes, none of you people said anything about your family, like greeting your wife, meeting your kids. It was all about going out and eating or well, or going to the valid. washroom. Or is that just something you take for granted? Of course uh, we're going to do that first.
8: Yeah, I, I, it's a very good point that we didn't mention it, but I did kind of – you skip that because, yeah, you assume that's what you would – do but uh, diana a very valid point and i truly hope my wife is not listening right now that i chose the toilet over my family <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah well we're, we're, they're, they're going to be there when you touch down anyway so that's a given and you know maybe they'll have a tray of tim hortons for you <laughs> once sure you, like uh, you go there you go all right. Uh, I, I want to ask you about, in, in a short little thing, because this has been in my, uh, you know, like a, a burr in my uh, bonnet all, or a oh. bee in my bonnet, wherever you put a burr or a bee or whatever, uh, all day, and the crew didn't really want to talk about it. But, I'm, you know, every year, every so often, and every decade, we talk about expanding the urban boundary, yeah. and here we have people dying to get into housing of some sort, and we're still bickering back and forth about, you know, let's not build any more houses. Let's just put everybody in infields and staff them up like cordwood when in fact the solution is on both sides of this discussion
8: uh, See, yeah yeah I, you're right you're you're i i believe you're right and i don't know that we have to go to one absolute hard and fast extreme or the other I, i'm yeah i'm fine with with the city saying we're going to slow down the expansion we're not just going to let everyone build wherever they want i'm fine with putting limits on it and i'm fine with saying let's encourage more intensification for those who want it in the downtown See, the problem I have is for those who say we should only be intensifying we've seen through the pandemic so many people want a house with a backyard or some space don't want to be in a tiny little one bedroom cubicle in the downtown locked up and you know here's Scott here's the thing that has driven me nuts about this debate I we're going to talk about it on my show I live in a house that at one time was on farmland as do Mm -hmm. i would suggest a huge number of people in this city and as i drive through my neighborhood and see a bunch of houses that were also on farmland that have signs up saying stop the sprawl i'm thinking well that's kind of selfish you know let me have my house that was on farmland but now i'm good no more we got to stop it here and
0: yeah and by the way uh the entire country is farmland of some sort. The entire sure. country. There is no wasteland in Canada whatsoever. Scott, we're out of time, but uh, join, uh, join up, Scott yeah. Radley for more of this coming up after 6 o'clock. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live week afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's a wrap for the show. Thanks to Will and Ted and Diana for contributing. As always, we leave it to you, the good CHML listener. And in this case, about urban boundaries and housing, to have the last word.
7: You know, we do need to build houses in Hamilton. I'll take one for myself.
5: And one for my wife. Don't think that's the idea. Don't think that's the idea, though.